So three of our speakers today will serve as, uh, maybe I won't call us expert panelists, but discussants for uh, the cases today. And uh, from a local group here, Stephen Puentes, Kara Chu and Dr. Smith and I will serve as panelists for discussing the cases. And this afternoon, this morning, we're going to hear from Dr. Joseph Aaron, who's professor of medicine at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Joe is a uh, very experienced clinical and translational researcher in HIV and is going to be presenting antiretroviral therapy strategies, a case-based panel discussion, and has a number of interesting cases that will utilize the audience response system. So make sure you have your touch pads ready. Joe? Um, well, um, first of all, thank you, Connie um, and Ron, uh, for inviting me. It's very, very thoughtful. Um, and I think this is the, I've been in LA and it's been the clearest I've ever seen Los Angeles. I, I don't know whether that's, that's you know, maybe I wasn't paying attention before, but but really, out my hotel window, I can see like mountains and stuff around. <laughs> it's really, it's very beautiful, actually. So you guys are very lucky. Um, so I'm going to go through these cases. There's a lot of questions. Um, I'm going to uh, allow the uh, experts to handle the um, audience response, so I don't mess that up. And if people have opinions and you want to go to the microphone in the midst of a case and argue with our esteemed panel, that's totally fine too. Okay, ah, here we go. Those are my disclosures, um, which are also in your packet. Okay, um, so after attending uh, the presentation, we're gonna, um, uh, you should be able to list reasons for initiating therapy for all uh, patients, regardless of CD4 count. Uh, describe some potential drug-drug interactions, and then discuss options uh, for second-line therapy in people who have failed uh, NRTI and NRTI uh, therapy. Great. Okay, let's jump right into it. So this is our first case. It's a 24-year-old man recently diagnosed with HIV on a routine screening. He's in good health. He takes no medicines. He had a severe case of mono about four years ago after coming out as a man who has sex with men while a sophomore in college. Um, he's a dance and art major at a local university. He has one partner for the last uh, eight months who is HIV negative. They practice safer sex and are monogamous, but he has been talking about having other partners, uh, and he has no history of, uh, of STIs. Uh, his CD4 count is uh, over 1,000. His viral load is low, 2,600. He's immune to hepatitis B, like many of our young people now, which is great. Uh, he's hepatitis C antibody negative. Um, his baseline RT and, and uh, PR genotype shows a K103N, so he has uh, transmitted drug resistance, he's HLA-B5701 negative, and his ALT and creatinine are within normal limits. He's told, he has tol he's told his adherence counselor that he's actually worried that he might be bad at, at taking pills. So, first question. Uh, would you get an integrase resistance genotype on this guy? <laughs> All right, let's see what. No, yes, and not sure. Uh, <laughs> Davey, what would you do? I guess the. the 
You come from the land of, of transmitted drug resistance. I do. K103N is big, uh, and it lasts a long time. So that four years ago is a little outside the realm of what I would consider it still being there. Um, but it definitely, we've seen it that long. Um, now, the question about integrase resistance a genotype, that would mean that he would have gotten infected from someone who both had a K103N and an integrase inhibitor resistance. If you marked it back to four years ago, then there's no transmitted drug resistance to integrase inhibitor circulating in the population. So even probably within the past year, I think that the prevalence is pretty low transmitted drug resistance that I would be inclined not to get the sure. integrase inhibitor. Are, are you doing it in, the, in your um, bin that you're seeing that are acutely infected? Are you getting an integrase resistance test? For a study, we are, For a and study we just don't see it. You just um, don't, not seeing no. it. The, the, I've only seen it twice, and it was all in a case of a partnership that the person was taking uh, Raltegravir. I see. So that's it. And in the audience, have you guys seen transmitted integrase resistance? Those, so there's some, yeah. So, so there's several, there are at least three hands up. So um, in, in North Carolina, it depends. It's actually very regional because um, like at our site, for example, we, we, we don't. Um, mm -hmm. Though in Charlotte and a couple other places where they've negotiated for the uh, assay that does both uh, well, all three, RT, PR, and, and uh, uh, integrase. Um, and the cases that we've seen are, are usually um, ones that might be polymorph polymorphic but have some impact on uh, L-vitegravir resistance. So we, we haven't seen much, much either. So in, in LA County, um, I'm sure it's out there, but it's just not one of the first starts. I, I'm a, a provider in South LA, um, so we have access to all the basic labs, we would just get a genotype, I think, at this point. So you would do an integrase genotype? Um, it, you know, it, our, our standard is just the routine PI uh, RT. and then our, our TI, right? Yeah. So just since this question came up in the discussion about PrEP, how much K65R transmitted resistance are you seeing yeah, we, in your studies in North Carolina or in acute infection in the U.S.? We don't see it. Yeah, we, we, I, I don't think we've ever had it. I mean, 103N, as Davey said, you know, 12, 15% quite common. And, and actually, it persists in the population, right? So, so you don't actually have to get K103N from someone on a favorins. In fact, it's, it becomes an essentially a, a, a wild type in these small clusters. So it's mm -hmm. passed from person to person. And it's actually been kind of well documented. Same with the, those old AZT resistance mutations that kind of hang around forever. Those actually can get passed kind of serially from person to person. So um, you certainly see that. But, but most of the transmitted drug resistance, I think, is, is, tends not to have impact on our first-line choices would be. Even the PI stuff tends not to be very. I think that, uh, so for those mutations, it's basically a fitness cost. Yep. I don't want to get too far into it. But no, that's 180, okay. that's good. 184V and uh, 65R take a replication cost. So I think that's probably the reason we don't see it too much in the population for transmitted drug resistance. Yeah. There was a, a described case at um, Croy of a person who became infected yes. while on PrEP, uh, and they were infected with a multi-drug resistant variant. But, but I think the fact that a single case was described is really... Um, tells you that, it, 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 at least so far, it's an, it's an uncommon event. Okay, um, so remember we have a 24-year-old, not sure how well he can take drugs. 
um, CD4-1100, viral load 2600, would you begin antiretroviral therapy at this point, yes or no? So, so overwhelmingly, yes, Kara, any, any? Well, we saw uh, from the start study that uh, starting early improves treatment outcomes or clinical outcomes in HIV. And I think you would want to have a discussion with the patient about the role of therapy um, and talk over his concerns about adherence. Yeah, I think it may not be an emergent start. I know there's a lot of discussion about starting therapy on the day people are diagnosed, and I know they're doing that in some settings. Um, uh, this is a, a NC State student, uh, and he, at least right now, is in a stable relationship, so it was something we actually worked on for a bit, so, but, but obviously the goal was to, to, to get him started on therapy. Steve? You know, I, I always like to talk to the patient a little bit about the history, and uh, prior to 2009, December, I mean, the recommendations may be considered, but, and, and I'll share with them my concern, which was I have somebody in my clinic who's infected, and prior to that time, I used to say you're not sick enough yet. Mm. And, and the, the question is, I don't have a light switch that says now you're sick. So I, I begin to lay the foundation. You, you need ultimately to start on therapy. I'd like to do it soon. It's not an emergency like you're raising. Um, and there is a lot of other things that need to be brought into the process, getting people on, uh, on a stable insurance plan, mm -hmm. booking them to a community pharmacy, and beginning the, the whole concept of uh, adherence. Yep, absolutely. Um, so I would, I would offer treatment. Sure. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think, you know, recommend or I don't know if the word, you know, but, but, but our job is to guide people. So um, next slide. Or, Okay, so this is just uh, the reminder. Connie already showed us some of the start data. Um, I'm not sure whether my little green button is doing anything. Um, so I'm just going to say maybe next slide. <laughs> okay, and so this is the, the, the difference uh, between deferred therapy and immediate therapy. All of you have seen this. It's really a worthwhile study to read, uh, I think. The other thing that I think is critically important about this study is that 68% of the events in the deferred arm occurred in people whose CD4 remained above 500, right? Because they didn't have to start until they got to 350. Uh, many actually started before 350, but, but so it wasn't like people progressed to less than 500 and then they saw the events. Um, the other thing I think that was really important about this study, now it's working, it's great, thanks, is, is that how um, having a study where people could get the drugs they needed those of you who participated in START, um, you know, you, you had the whole menu of drugs essentially, and how rapidly people got on therapy and got suppressed, and then sustained suppression. So when people have choice and access, you can see now out to um, literally five years, the suppression rate was like 95% in this particular study. And as, as Connie uh, said, the, the effect was really. Uh, uh, dr dramatic, about, about a 50%, a little bit more than 50% effect. Uh, and then, you know, the, this issue of, of there are some really serious events. Connie talked about this earlier, but really serious cancers that were um, diagnosed. If you look at the top two lines, it's the KS and, and lymphoma. Um, 
but, but there are also a series of other cancer types that were, it was somewhat surprising, but there are almost uh, three times as many cancers in the deferred arm as in the treatment arm. Um, okay, so here's the harder question now. So here's a guy, let's say he's done the adherence, he's got hooked up with a pharmacy, he's kind of ready to go, um, and he doesn't have a, a very high viral load, and he has a good CD4. Um, which therapy are you going to pick? You have a lot of choices. Um, so I'm really, I'm this, there's no right answer here, obviously. I'm, I'm really more curious as to, to which therapy you're going to choose. Um, so it's, it's essentially the list of approved therapies with Ropivirine kind of thrown in there. <laughs> um, <laughs> it might need more than 10 seconds, a long list, but. Wow, great, fantastic. So 44% went with Dalyutegravacavir 3TC. Um, the, the vast majority, obviously, um, are, are uh, uh, integrase-based therapy, um, and that's absolutely what we see in, in, in North Carolina. Um, uh, uh, a little bit of uh, darunavir and a, a little bit of repilverine. So Connie, what, what, if a fellow comes to you with this case and you say, what? I'm in the number one category number there. One category. I would have started that because it's a, a very well tolerated fixed drug combination, single tablet. He's already said he's a little bit worried about his ability to mm -hmm. adhere. You want to have him on a very simple regimen with not too many pills and one that should be well tolerated. His B5701 is negative. So. Yeah. I think he's a good candidate for that regimen, and the durability of that regimen, as we're starting to see over time, is really superb. So, Davy, what which one would you pick? I, I picked number one too. <laughs> so, okay. but um, you know, anywhere between, all you know, we're in the integrase inhibitor um, era, right? So you coined that. I liked it, and so and all those are quite good, but. My patients who are on number one, and I think coming on with number two soon will also be a very uh, strong, durable regimen. Yep. Steve or Kara, any difference of opinion? Um, you know, I, I think anything from six on up. Um, but again, it's one pill once a day, um, two pills. Adherence is a big issue, and I, I think talking to somebody, um, let them decide and, and part of it, and really put out the different combinations. I also show them the old history because I think a lot of times people come in with information, oh, I had a friend that was on a tripla. What about that one? And it, it's still on the table, but with the 103, uh, I said, yeah, you know, we're, we're going to have to, like, make a little detour yep. and, and use some real common sense with the patients. Yep. Um, I would say, you know, in my experience, the number seven, real pivorine, uh TAF or, or TDF, FTC, very well tolerated. This guy's no. a low viral load. He does have a 103N, but, but there's at least a suggestion that, that that probably doesn't impact. But I, I, would, I would probably go with one or, or three if and, I was. And number nine is uh, I show him my old, old picture Something from else. 2001 that has the uh, Fortivase, Norvir, 
combo <laughs> and and I said I can give you 35 pills. Right, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> if you're interested, so if you like pills. Their eyes open. Okay, so I think people know that um, the the guidelines are recommending therapy regardless of of um, uh, CD4 cell count. The one area that's still maybe a little bit gray is these uh, truly elite controllers, someone that's consistently um, has a viral load less than than the detectable uh, limit. Um, uh, some of those individuals will have a declining CD4 cell count, and to me, that's an absolute reason to start. Um, but you know, there are these super elites that 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 maybe don't need to be treated. And I think everybody here knows the um, uh, initial regimens. These are these are the kind of uh, DHHS alternative regimens. The uh, ISUSA group. We're working on our um, new guidelines. We're going to have a call and like like. 30 minutes or 45 minutes and, and talk about um, uh, uh, what our suggestions are going to be. And we're, we have several members here up here that are part of that panel. And I, I think you'll be interested in what we end up recommending. Um, and then I think people are aware of the uh, benefits of, of uh, uh, the, the TAF molecule in terms of its impact on, on uh, bone density and, and uh, uh, potentially on, on renal function. Head-to-head uh, -head compared to TDF with um, with Elvitegavir, Kobe, and FTC, very similar results. So actually, the 96-week data are now now published, um, and doesn't seem to really matter uh, uh, whether uh, by age or sex or, or race, the the TAF-containing molecule has similar activity to the the TDF and and perhaps um, safer over the long term. Um, I'm going to skip all this because the discussion is more fun. Okay, so this is a hypothetical. Um, if available, would you consider oral therapy for three to five months in a patient like this and then move to long-acting therapy if it were available? Uh, in this case, I'm hypothesizing what's available is an intramuscular injection every two months. Mike would really like the music, Mike Sag. He'd be very Spot. pleased yes. with. Thank you. All right, what do we got? Ah, so so people are interested. So so Connie was kind enough to let me show you the next uh, uh, bit of data um, from from Croy. Um, this was a study called Latte Two. Uh, Cabotegravir is an integrase inhibitor that's similar to dolutegravir, not exactly the same, but similar. And rilpivirine, you're aware of, both of these have been nanoformulated, um, so they actually have uh, relatively long uh, half-lives. They have to be delivered by IM injection, so it's not subcutaneous, it's, it's IM, and once you put it in, you can't get it out. Um, but in this particular study, patients were started on an oral therapy with cabotegavir, abacavir, 3TC. Those who were suppressed uh, were then randomized uh, to continue on oral therapy or be randomized to one of two choices, either uh, injectable integrase and NNRTI every four weeks or injectable integrase and NNRTI uh, every eight weeks. Uh, and, and you can see that the sample size is actually not small. There, there are over over 200 individuals that, that got the long-acting injectable, and then we, we saw the 32-week analysis at, at Croy. Um, patients were given oral rilpivirine for, a for four weeks before they went on to the injectable to make sure 
um, they actually didn't have an acute reaction to, to ropivirine. And to be honest, the results to me were, were, were surprising. Uh, those who were given uh, uh, the injectable every eight weeks maintained suppression for 32 weeks or, or eight months. This was the primary endpoint. Uh, those every uh, four weeks it was 94%, and on oral therapy it was 91%. Those obviously are not statistically significantly different, but, but in fact, this is the first study of a, a fully long-acting injectable regimen with no oral uh, uh, component after 20 weeks that actually maintains suppression. There was no emergence uh, of resistance in, in any of the arms. Um, and in general, it was uh, relatively well tolerated. Most of the patients, when asked, said they would prefer to continue uh, staying on that arm, uh, the, the injectable arm. Um, Connie, any opinions about long-acting injectable therapy? What, I mean, is this like a, like a little kind of niche kind of thing here, or is this something that's going to be important? Um, how, how would you frame it for the audience? Well, I guess, you know, I think it's an attractive option, but I think ultimately it will turn out to be more of a, a niche approach, if you will, to people who really have difficulties with adherence. I think if you're able to give it every eight weeks intramuscularly or even every four weeks, that can lend itself to directly observed therapy. Obviously, somebody's coming in and getting an injection so you know they're getting the drug. Um, the problem with the IM injections is that this is lifelong therapy, and I can't imagine very many people will want to get an every four week or every eight week injection for the rest of their lives. Right. Um, we have, I guess, the sort of closest analogous experiences in treating tuberculosis, drug-resistant tuberculosis, and just the two months of daily injections with streptomycin for MDRTB is horribly tolerated, not just because it's streptomycin, but people just get tired of the IM injections. And so I, I think only time will tell, but I think as a long-term strategy for the rest of your life, it may not be appropriate. But there may be certain periods of your life where, where adherence is an issue right, sure. that you could use this as a reasonable approach to maintain virologic suppression. A, a question from the audience? And yeah, I have a question. Uh, now, this gentleman, he appears like he's going to be pretty, you know, he's possibly going to be pretty adherent. But let's say, you know, he also had substance use issues. And let's say he, or let's just say he's not, he comes back to you, and he's not undetectable. His viral load is elevated, um, and it remains elevated. So it's, you know, with the population, we know with that regimen, right, if they take it, they'll do well. And we know in the Viking on the diotegravir, if they don't take it, I'm sorry, if they fail in the Viking, right, it's like 85% of the people who were failed got resistance. Mm -hmm. In the naive trial, right, it's, there were, I think, nine failures in the, you know, two had very high viral load, they weren't taking their drug, and the other people were had very low viral load, so they didn't have resistance. I was wondering what the panel thought about if this gentleman or, you know, the patients had viremia, continue to have viremia, how do you feel about this regimen? 
versus. So, and, and when you say this, what, what do you say? Which, which is this regimen? This injectable regimen? No, no, the, I'm sorry, the, the regimen that the, you were. I'm sorry, the, the original. The, the, the single sorry, the pill, yeah. The, the adalutegravir based regimen yeah. and failure with, you know, failure with yeah. viremia. Uh, do I want to answer? Uh, no. Um, to, <laughs> there's two points. Uh, I, I want, I'll make a point about the long acting because I think it's too early to tell about adherence and long acting regimens because it's a double-edged sword. Once somebody misses one dose, then there's a long tail of therapy that they're not, um, that might not suppress the virus and that's a resistance problem. And, in clinical trials, the set of population is very good, usually, right? So they're different than what might be in the real world, which is to your question, what actually happens in the real world with someone who might not be taking all their medications, even a daily medication regimen. Um, but I'm not quite sure what I would do. So you're talking about if this patient was taking his dolutegravir. Let's and, say, you know, because we know yeah. that if they take if they if they take it, they'll be undetectable. But we know that you know the old data. Let's say from the scope scope cohort, a homeless population, UCSF. If you take sixty five or seventy five percent of the old regimens, they'll be okay. But the we don't have that kind of data that I know of from dolutegravir. We know in Viking, if you fail with yeah. with you know if you fail with viremia. 85% of them are going to have get resistance. And then in the naive trial, the only people that failed had very they high viral loads. Yeah. I think that, I guess the point is, is that at least with dolutegravir, um, kind of, you know, intermittent in here, if you, if you all, everybody in Viking had to have integrase resistance to get into Viking. They didn't necessarily have to have it at baseline, but it had to be documented. To, so we know that for sure with dolutegravir, if you already are down a, a you know, a, a raltegravir pathway, that, that you, you can certainly select additional mutations. The question is if you're not down a pathway, if you're integrase naive, you know, it's, I think it's pretty clear the barrier with dolutegravir is much, much higher. Um, but I think if someone is, got viremia and, um, uh, you know, whether you continue a single uh, drug therapy, whether you reassess adherence, I think that's a, a kind of difficult question. I certainly have patients on dolutegravir who are not taking it consistently and have yet not developed resistance. Um, that's right. But, um, you know, whether it's going to end up the same as a boosted PI, I, I can't tell you. I, there will be resistance to dolutegravir. And in the, the sailing study, you did see you know, integrase naive people develop mutations to, to dolutegravir. It just, it was difficult to do. I know, Steve, if you want to. Yeah, you know, I, I think of viremia, that's bad. It's just something's wrong. They're not getting the prescriptions from the pharmacy. So we have community pharmacy delivery. Um, they're not taking it. How do you assess it? And, and so these are the people I pull in. Instead of putting them out on a three month, you're, you're now rewarded by seeing me every month. And it's a lot of intensive work. I have staff that uh, try to talk to them about adherence, but try to, I, I try to persevere with them and hoping that my convincing, I also went to the uh, drug levels. So I have a little picture that I draw to people. Missing a dose is, is tantamount to restarting a, a loading dose next time you take your medication. And, and so 
it may be just some simple education. I, I, I'm a little stubborn or slow in changing because is it resistance right off the hand? I, I usually address it as an adherence problem first. And, and I could be you know, banging my head against the wall for six months with somebody before I really decide to do some additional testing. Um, not all the time, but I, mean, I think every, every patient should be given a, uh, a little refresher course in terms of how to take their medications. This depot, I think, is a great idea. I have patients already coming to me asking, what, what about that shot? I hear somebody, because the trial's going on in LA. Um, I think it's a great idea. I, I think in looking at the patients that I have, which many of them are 12, 13, 14 years with me, um, some of them are still on their first combinations. And um, it, people, people want to simplify, will help them. Um, getting them under control first and then moving them onto a stable, I, I think there has to be that demonstration of stability before you jump to the depot. Um, and my other question is, does it hurt when it injects? Well, it's an IM injection. It, it does. So it, so it does, it, you know, it is, people are it is a little sore, yeah. Um, but it's not like, you know, it's not persistent, it's you not know, like nodules like T20, it, it's, yeah. not, it's not days of soreness. And I, I think um, one injection, uh, how many weeks apart? Well, Four, it's actually, eight. yeah, could, the, the study had every eight weeks, so six times a year, but it, it actually is two injections, not, not one, but because it, it's uh -huh. separate injections for each drug. But, you know, I mean, and it may be that this is beginning of a, on a path. Right. And, and if you go back to 1995 and 96, right. yeah, when we exactly. were looking at sequinavir coming out and trying to get enough drug in, and yeah. there was a lot of talk about the protease inhibitors in, in that era, the biggest problem was drug delivery. So, so here's a solution to drug delivery 25 years later, yeah. which I think is very novel. And it's mm -hmm. unfortunate it's taken this long, but... Uh, IM injection will be, a, right. a, I think, uh, something for the future. I, I don't know if I'll see it, but uh, All right. it's so, out there. So in the, our next question. So remember, this guy's in a discordant relationship. They've been using safer sex. Uh, if you were the clinician for the, the above patient's partner also, so you were actually taking care of both of them, would you recommend PrEP for this partner? And, and maybe we could say it broadly. If you're starting someone... Uh, who has uh, uh, viremia on therapy and you also care for their HIV-negative partner, do, do you recommend PrEP? And if so, uh, how long? So go ahead, vote. this pregnant pause with each. Ah, interesting. Kara, do you want to comment? Um, well, I think I would uh, recommend PrEP to the partner. Um, one, if you're not sure if the patient's going to uh, actually go on therapy right away and also be adherent to therapy. Two, you said that they practice safer sex, which to me means um, inconsistent condom use. And I think you also mentioned that they might have partners outside of the relationship. Yeah, they, they were talking about it, right? Yeah. yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, and, and let's say he manages to take his therapy. How, 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 how long, and, and again, you know, there's this issue of, of, you know, you have the partner separate, but let, just for the sake of argument, let's say that they're, they're a, a monogamous couple. You, 
continue prep indefinitely or for a certain amount of time, or how, how would you do it? I think I would continue it indefinitely. Um, I mean, with monitoring for toxicities. Mm -hmm. um, sure, no, no, with the appropriate uh, monitoring. Right, right. Um, and I'm actually not sure what the um, degree of protection is in um, MSM who are um, who are monogamous. HPTN052 was in heterosexual Sexuals, couples, right, exactly. um, and so that had a very high rate of um, or very low rate of transmission in the in those serodiscordant couples. Um, so the I think the there will still be a persistent, uh, potentially a small but persistent risk um, even with virologic suppression. Mm -hmm. Dissenters? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just by nature of being serodiscordant couples, when you find them, there's probably something already saying that the transmission hasn't happened, so right, you can sure. say that. But in uh, all these couple studies, there's lots of transmission outside the outside, partnerships. Outside, sure, and, absolutely. Um, just by, just for that, I would say, say prep sure. is a great idea. Sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think you're raising the question now that the primary patients on treatment, are they going to transmit? Because yeah. th this, yeah, is, yeah, that's this a, yeah. is the number one, and I, I certainly high to zero, or how close yeah. to zero, and what's that time? Sure. Um, that's my question still. Yeah, I think it's an, it, it's an open question. That in, in 052, which Kara mentioned, um, uh, they actually saw that Mike Cohen presented the data again summer of 2015. Um, and, you know, uh, basically, um, the, as Kara pointed out, these were heterosexual, not, not uh, um, uh, men of sex with men. These are heterosexual couples. But I, the bottom line is two things. One is that, that um, ART is not magic. So people that were prescribed ART but weren't suppressed did transmit. On the other hand, anybody who was suppressed, any couple that what, there were no linked transmissions. As Davey points out, there are actually quite a few unlinked uh, transmissions um, and, and a, a, reason to, um, a reason to make sure you get that uh, seronegative partner in a different room at a different time and because and, and he, he may have other uh, risks. Uh, but Steve, what I would say is that, that if you were confident about the, uh, a monogamous couple, I would say six months is what I would say, um, and it's it's made up basically. Almost all the transmissions in 052, again acknowledging that it's heterosexual sex, you know, uh, that occurred in in uh, the uh, treated you know index partnership um, occurred probably within a few weeks of, of starting therapy. So um, based on phylogenetic analysis and other analyses, so. Um, that's what I would say. But I think the issue of, of, of continued risk of the partner, as Davey and Kara mentioned, I think is really a big deal. Um, go ahead. We have a, a question. Yeah, how uh, closely do you adhere to the creatinine clearance being at 60? And I have a case where somebody, guys, his estimated was about 57, and I'm unsure. Do I start prep? Do I not? You know, what, how, what do you guys do in those sorts of situations? Yeah, there, there was actually several nice presentations at Croy that that um, looked at the the you know this risk, and actually it was pretty much if if you're above your creatinine clearance is above ninety and your age is below forty or forty five, your your risk is incredibly low. I think the person you're talking about, however, with a creatinine clearance around sixty, 
Um, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I would really depend on, th that's a real kind of risk benefit, I think, in terms of his, you know, or her risk of, uh, of HIV infection. Um, I think most tenofovir-related or TDF-related renal dysfunction is, is reversible if monitored carefully. So I, I wouldn't, if they were really high risk and unable to, to um, uh, protect themselves in, in other ways, I, I, would, I would consider it. But, but I would probably, you know, be very rigorous to following them, you know, every, every three months with a creatinine is how I would approach it. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want me to... Uh, yeah, well, actually, I have a prep case coming up here. Okay. So, so there, there are some questions that. Um, so, you're Davey. You're working in an STD clinic in San Diego. A uh, 35 year old man with sexist men is seen for a rash and is diagnosed with syphilis, which you treat. And, you, like a good STD doctor, you screen all three orifices for GC and chlamydia. They're all negative. And, but as you're doing this, he asks you about prep. He states he works as an accountant, he has no medical histories on no medications, but he also has no steady sex partner. And two or sometimes three weekends a month, he meets partners online. Uh, he has sex only with men. He likes to be um, the insertive partner, but occasionally will be the receptive partner, uh, depending on you know, the negotiation. Um, he almost always uses condoms, uh, but is embarrassed to admit that he doesn't always. and, and, and sometimes would like to have sex without them if he could. So the first question is, he is HIV negative, so you did obviously the test, you do a fourth generation, he's negative, um, his creatinine is normal, would you prescribe PrEP, yes or no? All right. Pregnant pause and <laughs> whoa, hundred percent. I've never, ever, ever, ever been at a conference with hundred percent. Has anybody ever seen hundred percent? No, never. That's amazing. Applause. <laughs> Outstanding. That's terrific. Um, no discussion. Um, but here's one uh, that might pertain to the questioner. Um, let's say his creatinine clearance was 60. Would you <coughs> prescribe TAF FTC now that it's available instead of uh, TDF FTC? Yes, no, or not sure? Ah. Okay, this, this is a bit of a trick question. I, and I kind of, I might have blanked when you were talking. Did you, did you talk about the no, I didn't. Taft monkey thing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although one of the members of the audience asked me about it during the break. And yeah. so I think. So what, 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 what's so your answer to this question? Well, I answered no because of the Taft monkey thing. Right. And I wasn't sure if you were going to cover it or I, I should, I, I can, so I, I can, didn't in uh, my talk. Yeah. But uh, so are you going to? Sure. Talk? I okay. don't have any slides, but um, all right. So I mean, th so there are two issues. One is there, there at Croy there was a study in uh, by the CDC that, that they do these um, exposure studies uh, with macaques. They they uh, developed a dose of uh, TAF FTC that they thought mirrored the the human dose, and and actually in in the study. Um, 
uh, with dosing similar to that they used with TDF-FTT, they actually saw protection in, in all, all six monkeys. But um, they actually looked at uh, rectal uh, concentrations of the uh, tenofovir uh, diphosphate, which is the actual the, the active molecule in the cell, and they actually saw lower uh, than anticipated uh, concentrations. And then Angela Kashuba from, from UNC actually looked carefully in, in, a, uh, in women, um, uh, both in rectal tissue and in vaginal cervical tissue, and also saw a substantially lower than expected concentrations. Um, uh, whether it will work or won't work, I think we're, we're not sure, but, but my answer to this question would, would be no uh, at, at this point based on, you know, essentially we have data from six macaques and that's kind of all we have and there's at least some question about intracellular concentrations in the genital tract um, that were, were lower than anticipated. And I, and I think the way I answered the person's question during the break, and this, I may be completely wrong because <laughs> I'm not sure the pharmacologic principles apply, but to me, when you're talking about tissue levels, that's not exactly the same thing as intracellular levels. Sure. Mm -hmm. And when, when you're treating disease, it's the intracellular level that's important. When you're trying to prevent disease, it's the tissue level that's important. Right. And so there may, I think there may actually be a difference between tenofovir and TAF with regard to usage in PrEP. I, we don't know that for sure, and we don't have studies to support that, yep. but theoretically, I think it's possible there's right. a difference. And it, it, and it may work, and I, I just think I would just wait right. to study it, and, and, and I would just be careful about. Okay, now he has another question. You tell him he can't, uh, he can't uh, um, have TAF, but, but he can have uh, uh, TDF-FTC, but he says, I've never really taken pills in my life, and I only have sex a couple of Saturdays and Sundays a month. Um, so how will you actually tell him to take his TDF-FTC? Uh, and so here's the question. You can either tell him to take it daily, because that's how he, what you believe. Perhaps he could do the hypergay regimen. Hypergay was two uh, TDF-FTCs, 24 to uh, two hours prior to having sex, and then one pill 24 hours, and one pill 40 hours later, or or something else. So go ahead and pick what you would tell him to do. And you're going to monitor him. You're going to do all the other good things. Oh, that's Harry Potter, right? Yeah. All right. Potter. I this is I'm, I can't wait. Ah. It won't be 100 percent. I'm sure of that. Ah, okay. I'm going to go to Davey on this one. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I would tell him to take daily prep because we know that works. Um, and it's about how much drug that gets in. I have some concerns about the hypergay study just because the ones who were protected had the most sex and therefore they were actually getting the most drug in. Right. So as much drug as we can get in, the better for protection. So for him, I would be more, I would be inclined to say you need to take your pills every day and encourage that versus the hypergay. Steve? Yeah, I, I think number two is um, an interesting concept because it really looks at drug levels. Can you load and then uh, get a therapeutic, maintain a therapeutic. And I, I would tell the patient, take it every day, but knowing that his practice is going to be uh, occasional sex, 
I'd give him also this as an educational piece. You, you need to be aware that you don't have enough if you take it the day before one pill. But you, there is some available information that you can possibly get therapeutic, but it's not the, the, the first line. I, I try to empower the patients with some, at least some, some basic knowledge. And I think that's the practical part about PrEP is that you gotta take it every day, but if you don't, what's the next best? And even going back five years ago when we were arguing, well, do we have enough data to even su support the use of PrEP? You know, if you can prevent 20%, 40%, maximize, you know, 100% protection, I think that's the, it, it all comes in as a gray zone. Yeah, um, I, I, it will be interesting to see whether there's a sub-analysis from Ipergay. Were, were there a subset of men that, that really were kind of intermittently yeah. having sex? I think Davy's point is really a, a good one that, that many of the men were, were having sex so frequently that they were getting dosed four or five times five a week. Five times a week, yeah. 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 So and, I, and I think if you look at the load, I mean, this goes back to medical school time where you have to have three to four doses to start entering into a therapeutic zone. The fifth dose really yeah. puts you at a steady state. Yeah. And, you know, is that enough? I, I you know, yeah. put it out. Well, I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit sure. because the, the PK sub-analyses from the original IPREX study right. suggested that people were protected if they took four doses a week. Men were men. protected. Yeah. Yes, men were protected. And so, um, which is kind of beginning to mirror the hypergay regimen yeah. to some degree. So you wonder if there isn't a role for people who really only have intermittent sure. sex no, for using this kind of regimen. Yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how those subset analyses play out over time. Yeah. I mean, somebody who seems as organized as this guy, I, I would, you know, if, if he really said, you know, look at, I'll cut down to once a month going out. Could, could I, could I not take pills every day? I, I would, I, I would be with Steve. I'd probably have him take at least several doses right. prior right. to the weekend if, if he really was going to only take it intermittently as opposed to this kind of single double dose on the, on the kind of day of or the, you know, you know, and, and the patients that are, are going out on grinder, I, I've asked them, I said, so when do you start looking? And it's not like in the middle of the week. Well, th this is the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, where I'm getting ready to party with somebody. Right. And I'm out there looking. So that, that's part of what I'm asking. So if you know when you might be, that's the day that, you know, four or five days before, think about that. Yeah, we call it the white party prep. So there was yeah. a big uh, white party uh, recently in Palm Springs, and there were lots of people who wanted to get take their prep just started before they go to the white party. Right. So, but but you didn't tell them started the day before you told they them. They did not. I mean, we tried to prescribe. We used it as an opportunity to start them on prep for reals. Right. But um, it was definitely <laughs> for reals. For reals. It was definitely a white party phenomenon. Got it. Go ahead. The the, the creatinine question. Do you want me to? The which question? The, the, the question. The creatinine question. Yeah. No, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, interestingly, I, I so when you start doing prep or you do a lot of labs, I do a lot of labs in my clinic and. Um, you who ordered the lab deserve the results, so I have a lot of abnormal labs. And creatinine, interestingly, in this one patient, uh, surprised the hell out of me because it wasn't due to dehydration. It was because he's a body weightlifter yeah, yeah. and was on this uh, substance called Explode. So the point is that all creatinines or decrease in creatinine clearance, uh, do a history. 
what other supplement are you taking? Yeah. The other thing I'm doing is a uh, urine analysis, and I'm actually going back to something very primitive, which is like specific gravity. And uh, I'm using that to tell patients, you're not drinking enough water. Because what, I, what I'm trying to do is give them some feedback for basic health maintenance. Um, be sure you maintain a good daily hydration, and I think it'll prevent some of these problems. Great, okay. Um, so now we're gonna get a little more complicated. This is case number three. It's a 54-year-old woman recently diagnosed HIV positive. The test was done after her partner was diagnosed with HIV when he was admitted to the hospital for oh. pneumonia. She had never been previously tested. Her medical history includes obesity, uh, um, GE reflux, type 2 diabetes, diagnosed five years ago, hypertension, and osteopenia by DEXA. Um, she has one male partner. She smokes a pack per day. She doesn't drink alcohol or take any other substances. She's currently unemployed. And her medications include uh, ezomeprazole and lodipine, uh, metformin, uh, calcium carbonate, vitamin D, uh, and fluticasone, salmeterol, inhaler for her, for her breathing. This is what she looks like. Her BMI is 36. She's from North Carolina. That's like average. Um, her, <laughs> her, her blood pressure is... is uh, uh, relatively well controlled. Uh, she has mild peripheral uh, neuropathy. Her creatinine is 1.3 with a creatinine clearance of 48 calculated. She's um, uh, immune to hepatitis A and B. She's hep C negative. She's HLA B5701 negative. Her hemoglobin A1C is 7.2, so she is controlling her diabetes better than virtually all of my patients. Um, <laughs> and her CD4 is low, her viral load's high. Uh, she has no uh, uh, resistance um, by RT and PR, and she really wants to start therapy. This is um, freaking her out. Um, so, what are you going to do? Um, so, uh, pretty similar choices to before. Um, I'm not going to read them all. They're, they're the recommended regimens with rilpivirine kind of thrown in there. Um, so uh, go ahead and, and think about it and, and vote. It's, it's not easy. I'm sure we won't get 100% on this one. It'll be interesting. Ah, wow. Ooh, something else. I can't, I want, I want to hear from the something Wonder else. Wonder what else. <laughs> uh, something else, people. Um, okay. Um, hmm. Uh, Connie, you want to go first? No. <laughs> <laughs> you go. <laughs> Come on. Uh, well, um, I'll go. I, I think, yeah. I'll go. Okay, okay, go ahead, go Steve ahead. will go. Well, <laughs> you know, this, this is, she's married. Right? Yeah, uh-huh. So, so the, the question also I have, what's the husband going to take? Because the husband and wife team is doing much better than individual what yeah. has a handful of pills. So that's part of the questions I would ask. Um, I, she has AIDS by percentage. Yeah. And uh, diabetic, hypertension. Um, she's like one of my patients in South L.A. Sure. Um, yeah, they're very motivated. They'll take anything. Yeah. Um, I'm also concerned... Um, 350,000 viral. Yep. This is very high, and I, I'm I'm just old enough to say, um, 
I still rely on protease inhibitors quite a bit. Hmm. Okay. So my, mine is number six. Number six. And so um, the Kobe, the Runavir, you know, this is a, a, a simplified one pill, a couple pills now. Um, I think it'll fit with her amlodipine, her metformin. Um, yep. That's sort of mm, where I'm going. I'm, I'm yeah. a little concerned, though, about the uh, GERD and drug-drug uh, mm. interactions, but um, I, I talked to her about timing of medications and get her on a standard, very effective, uh, mm. yeah. potent. Well, this is the person I, I, I certainly wouldn't use a Bacavir in. I mean, I just, again, I, I think this debate about whether a Bacavir is associated with MI or not, I, 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 there's no answer for that, but, but she smokes, she's hypertensive, right. she's diabetic. I, I just... I don't. I don't think you you need to to go there. Um, her creatinine clearance is is right around 50, a little bit less. Um, I personally probably would have picked regimen number number two with with uh, TAF FTC, um, but you're going to have to manipulate. Just like with the, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with choosing uh, darunavir uh, Kobe uh, with uh, TAF FTC in this patient. Uh, you know, the other thing is. The, there's 8% of people there that mentioned raltegravir. I mean, she's already on BID medicines. That's probably the intervention that has the fewest drug interactions. In fact, you, I don't think you would need to modify any of her medicines uh, if you gave her raltegravir plus uh, TAF FTC. So I actually think that's quite a reasonable uh, choice. Um, uh, you, you do have to be careful, right? So if we go forward, you do have to be careful about fluticasone and uh, cobicistat and uh, 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 and um, you, you will, you can get uh, a cushionoid uh, with uh, uh, inhaled fluticasone, so you need to be careful. It's not an absolute contraindication, but, but I know our pharmacists are all over our um, whatevers if, if we try to give fluticasone with ritonavir or cobicistat, and the pharmacists in the audience, I'm sure, um, metformin and dolutegravir is an issue. It's not, again, not a contraindication, but you're going to have to modify therapy. Uh, and it turns out salmeterol is actually contraindicated with COBE and, and ritonavir. So um, you'd have to modify her uh, uh, um, inhaled uh, treatment for her COPD. So, so this is a, 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 a tough one. Again, I would probably do dolutegravir uh, TAF FTC, though, though f she's already on BID, Raltegravir, I think it would be quite, quite reasonable. And we have a, obviously a very long, um, this, a very this, long track record with Raltegravir. This is someone who I would go talk to my pharmacist. Yeah, right? for, and without sit down a doubt, and yeah. really sort of go through it. Yeah, and yeah without a doubt. Could I, well, sure. You know, in, in the era of electronic health records, um, we don't have that luxury. We're, we're uh, expected to see people minimum 20 minutes throughput. You got to get them in and out, and I think the uh, electronic health records. I haven't seen the amlodipine, Kobe, or ritonavir drug drug interaction pop up. But uh, it's, you know, a, it's an interaction. It's, it's, it's it is not a contraindication. Right. But uh, you, I mean, if you see it, you, you, what will happen is about three weeks later they'll come back and they'll have peripheral edema. Um, uh, uh, but it's not a contraindication. You can certainly do it. Um, no, it's 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 just you have to you have to be careful. If you do choose um, to use dolutegravir, what do you do with the metformin? So here's another question. Mm. Go ahead and vote.
squeeze out that last one. Um, uh, that, and 50% uh, of you uh, were on target. You, the, at least the package insert now suggests that you should reduce the daily dose of metformin to 1,000 milligrams total, whether you divide it or give it as a single 1,000 milligram dose. Um, but that's, um, that's a, a, a the appropriate management. So let's keep going, because um, uh, I don't know if we're allowed to go a little over, because we started early. So, so Kristen or Donna or whoever, just, just let us know. OK, so next case, 48-year-old uh, fair-skinned man on atazanavir, tonavir, TDF-FTC, who presents asking if his therapy can be simplified. Mm -hmm. His viral load is less than 40. That's at our uh, hospital. We use the ab. Uh, we, we use the assay that has less than 40 is a lower limit of detection. Um, the CD4 is 450. Um, he's uh, no other medical problems, no other medications. His creatinine uh, is 1.9. It was 1.0 three years ago. His uh, EGFR is 55. His total billy is 3.9. His AST, ALT are normal. He's hepatitis B immune, C negative, HLA-B5701 negative. Um, He's been in care like clockwork um, for the last six years in our clinic, and, and uh, all his HIV RNAs going back six years have been uh, below detectable limits. First question. Whoops. Oh, no, here's his additional treatment history. Sorry. Um, he was diagnosed in 2001 uh, uh, with a CD4 of 168, a viral load of half a million. He was enrolled in an ACDG study at a nearby site. You can guess where that is. Um, he knows he got efavirenz and other medications. He doesn't really remember his treatment response. He stopped all ART at the end of the study in approximately 2004. And he came to UNC in 2007, uh, began treatment at that time with atazanavir, ritonavir, TDF, FTC. And um, he thinks at, at the time his uh, uh, RNA was over 100,000, his CD4 was 400. Um, and he can tell you the six times he missed his ARV doses in the last eight years. So first question, um, is this someone where you might get one of these HIV DNA archival resistant genotypes? And if you don't know what that is, Davey's <laughs> going to explain it. Because I hear in, in San Diego it's hot, according to my friend Chuck. Yes, no, maybe so. Um, 47, no, 37, yes. Davey, what, what would you do? Uh, <laughs> um, so two parts of the story. If he's a very good historian and you know what he's taken and he knows what he's taking, then this is a good, you don't need a genotype. Uh, history works out really well, especially if it has a documented resistance. Um, Archival genotype looks at the HIV DNA portion, which we talked about this morning. And if there is resistant and it's archived and you can see it, great, it works. So my one caveat is if you see it, then it's there. If it's not, if you don't see it, that doesn't mean that it's not there. Because the sampling that you're actually doing is relatively small considering the total HIV DNA population. That's my biggest caveat. So I'll just stop there. But um, for him, he seems reliable, and I would be less inclined, although I might go look up that ACTG trial that he was on and see what he was taking. Yeah. 
we, we, we didn't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we didn't do this test either. Um, uh, Kara, do you, have you ever ordered this test? I have not because I don't think um, it would get paid for in our clinic, no. uh, in my Ryan White clinic. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. it's That's not really an option. Yeah. Our, okay. our Ryan White pays for it, which might be why it's hot, but you have to get a prior auth, basically. Yeah, and I, I think what we're looking at is uh, Medi-Cal, Medicare, and else you get the standard genotype. Yep. Well, as it turns out, maybe he is from Los Angeles because insurance <laughs> refused to pay for the archived DNA test, and so you decide to switch therapy anyway. What ART would you recommend? Um, and you cannot switch if you don't want to. That's a choice. So go ahead and, uh, and, and pick. We can start the music. Oh, she's working on it. So there you go. All right, my my red light is flashing. So Kristen, just let me know how when you want us to stop. We do want to get through this case at least. <laughs> seems to be a popular choice here in, in, <laughs> in Los Angeles. Um, okay. Uh, the 11% are not going to switch. Okay. Um, should we discuss this or? Um, tell us what happened. Tell us what happened, yeah. For, for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you <coughs> what happens. Okay. So what happens is uh, we decided to switch him to L-vitegavir, COBE, TAF, FTC uh, from several, uh, you know, regimens. And, 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 and you guys probably know these data. Um, it, this uh, excellent uh, main, uh, excellent uh, maintenance of suppression in patients who had not previously failed the treatment regimen. Uh, we don't know whether this guy failed or not. Mm. Um, and in that particular study, there was improvement in bone density and improvement in some uh, renal markers. We've also, uh, in the striving study, so this is um, uh, switching uh, in, again, people were suppressed on a first regimen uh, who uh, switched to uh, dolutegravir 3TC, uh, randomized immediate switch versus a delayed switch. Um, and this is one of the first studies, I think, that, that we're uh, actually, people that were on integrase inhibitors could actually participate uh, in this study. Um, most of them were not, uh, though 25% uh, were, and, and most were on TDF-FTC when, when they made the switch. Um, in this study, um, actually, the, um, it was actually the people who maintained therapy were numerically uh, slightly more likely to stay suppressed, 88% versus 85%. Um, but virologic failures or virologic non-response was very uncommon. And, and the difference was predominantly driven by some uh, withdrawal uh, due to AEs in people that were switched to uh, dolutegravir or bacavir 3TC. So about 4% of patients actually withdrew due to adverse events versus none in people who, you know, stayed on the same therapy uh, that they had been on. So um, there was a kind of a little turbulence in this particular study uh, at the time of switch that resulted in uh, uh, some discontinuations, though, again, virologically, uh, the switch was, was quite safe. Um, uh, and, and in the 
uh, per protocol population, the success rate was quite high. So, so I think either choice would be uh, quite uh, reasonable in this patient. I think the fact that uh, uh, the creatinine is kind of rising would certainly want you to move away from TDF, though, though perhaps uh, 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 TAF would be reasonable here. So, um, and then, you know, you could perhaps go away from uh, uh, nucleosides altogether. This is cabotegravirolpivirine as oral therapy, uh, uh, maintaining suppression uh, once uh, suppressed on three-drug therapy. But I'm going to skip over that for the sake of time. So um, he comes back. We did actually switch him to L-vitegravir, COBE, FTC, and TAF. Um, he returns one month later, and he's thrilled. His viral load is suppressed. Um, his CD4 is 560. His total bilirubin is now 1.1. His creatinine is stable at 1.4. Three months later, his HIV RNA uh, is uh, mm. less than 40 but detected. Um, and then he comes back at six months. And unfortunately, his viral load is now 10,000. And his CD4 is uh, a little bit below 500. You call him right away to repeat, and uh, his viral load is uh, 11,000. Um, and this was a lesson for us. Um, he gets a, a RT-PR genotype, and he actually has a 103N, a 184V, and he has this thing that you, we almost never see, um, is a 69 insertion, which is this highly drug NRTI-resistant uh, mutation that really was selected for specifically when we use certain combinations of RT inhibitors. Um, and unfortunately, he also uh, developed a 155H mutation uh, 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 which is an integrase mutation that uh, can be selected for by raltegravir or, or elvitegravir. Uh, what we did do then is what Davy suggested we do earlier, and we should have. Um, we, we called the other site. We don't like to talk to them at Duke, but we were forced <laughs> to. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, he, he, did, he was on an ACTG study. Um, there was an ACT study that compared D4T, DDI to uh, uh, AZT, 3TC way back when. And, um, wow. uh, so he was on a Favrin's D4T, DDI, uh, and, and uh, he had multiple RNAs above the limit of detection. There was no resistance testing at that time. And so he had actually selected for a multi-drug resistant variant uh, and probably was suppressed on adazanavir, ritonavir alone. Uh, um, uh, with maybe some partial activity of the nucleosides. So to, for us, this was a pretty significant lesson on, on what not to do um, and to get that history. And it's possible that the archival genotype would have helped us uh, in, in this case, um, uh, but it was a really kind of sobering uh, lesson. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, there's no, I didn't actually build a question for what to do next. I can tell you, what we did is he ended up on a, uh, uh, back on a boosted protease inhibitor and, and uh, actually uh, dolutegavir twice daily um, and uh, um, continued on, I think, FTC uh, uh, for the mystical powers of FTC. Um, but, th but that's what was done. So we probably should stop at this point. Um, I, don't, I don't know whether we have a few minutes for questions. Kind of <coughs> help me here. Are we... Oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. We have about seven minutes. Okay. Seven so minutes. if people have questions, um, there was one question that um, uh, how many of you get an HLA B5701 as part of baseline labs? We're doing that routinely now. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's certainly worth 
doing, even if you, you don't want to uh, prescribe uh, a Bacavera's initial regimen for a specific patient, it's very useful information to have if, if you have a toxicity or you need to switch later on. I think that's certainly something that um, is worth doing. Um, probably a lot more useful than a G6PD or a Toxo antibody, which unfortunately we still get. We still get Okay, go, go ahead, far away. It, say you had done what you said and looked back at this patient's history and maybe planned, maybe he does have some resistance or you got the archival genotype. And is there any role, at least maybe now or versus in the near future, for like a dolutegravir boosted PI regimen? Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, that's what he kind of ended up on. And, yeah. and the advantage, if we had actually done the research, is um, he wouldn't have to be on twice daily dolutegravir. Um, it, it, we could have used, you know, uh, potentially um, uh, darunavir-cobi plus dolutegravir once a day. Um, Would you guys have maybe even done that just without any of the further data and gone with that? Yeah, or? yeah, I, th I think the, the, I think the bottom line is we, we should have gotten all the information. I mean, I think even if it takes an extra phone call and that we were, I think we were lulled by the fact that he'd been in our clinic for eight years. Mm -hmm. Virtually every single viral load was not detected. You know, we figured, well, he probably took his medicine before just like he did now. Right. Um, and, uh, and it just wasn't the case. Um, and unfortunately, it's a true story. I wish I'd made it up, but it's, we, uh, we didn't make it up. Thanks um, for sharing it. So. Can I? You know, th this is uh, a real dilemma because patients come in and they want to be switched. I want something simpler. And I, I think this is the uh, kick, kick in my butt that uh, I've had on several cases too many to, to uh, it really stops you now because I, I don't have that zest to change, change, change. So I'll have a conversation with the patients. I'll relay some of my past experiences with other patients. Um, it could get worse rather than better. And if this whole discussion also is if it's not broken, should we fix it? Um, yeah. And he was clearly broken. I mean, he... He, he was, you know, uh, jaundiced, uh, um, and his move. creatinine was rising. There, there, but, you know, we could have done something simpler. We could have, yeah. we could have went just to Darunavir Kobe, for example, and, um, and, and uh, well, at the time, uh, TAF FTC wasn't available, so that wasn't an option. So, so we were, you know, um, uh, uh, we were um, limited a bit, so. Go ahead, please. Hi. Um, I had a more general question back on the PrEP issue. Um, I am wondering, uh, in terms of your current management, many of my uh, current PrEP consultations are in folks who, um, in my evaluation, are fairly low risk, actually, for new HIV infection. I mean, some I would even characterize as worried well, but, you know, uh, many others have some degree of risk, but overall, you know, they're very adherent in terms of uh, condoms or, uh, you know, just a few other uh, real risk factors. I'm wondering, um, you know, you have a conversation with these folks and, you know, they've heard about PrEP from other people. They've already kind of decided they want to be on it. Currently, um, uh, do you basically treat all comers regardless of, you know, risk factors? Uh, you know, this was originally approved for high-risk folks, but we're quite reticent to turn people away. And I'm wondering what kind of conversations 
uh, you folks on the panel have. Um, so I've been running an STD clinic now for almost 15 years, and I'm lousy at uh, determining risk of people with what they tell me. So my biggest indication if somebody asks for it, then we have the conversation, and then I explain risks and benefits, and for the most, I, I offer it um, if they ask for it, and especially um, if they're in my gay men's health clinic, transgender clinic. Um, I, yeah, I guess I would leave it there. But there's not a lot of, I mean, yeah, we all have the worried well, et cetera, but I think that if they're coming to ask me for prep, um, then I usually give it to them. So I don't know what others think. Steve? I, I would offer it. And um, the, the interesting thing is that they're coming to you to have a conversation, which is a really good sense, having a conversation rather than do a test to see if I'm negative or positive. And, and it, it indicates then that there's something happening in the community, which is really good because now we're bringing it to a level where we can talk. Um, you're, the, you're giving somebody some information. Maybe they're going to take it to the next level with a partner who, or they, a, a, a colleague or a friend who's really high risk and would benefit them from linking into care. So, so it's a concept, I think, of a public health, not a... Uh, um, a yes or no, but are we going to do a better good somewhere down the line? And, and it's going to be an unmeasurable, but it's really worth the effort, I think, to offer that kind of uh, information, good information to your, your patient, and to I, offer treatment. And I do think, you know, you know, when someone who is maybe a worried well and is at relatively lower risk, I mean, it, it's not without side effects, right? I mean, yeah. both, both kind of, you know, not very dangerous ones, but but nausea, bloating is a, a uh, you know uh, you hear from 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 people who are otherwise uh, completely healthy, and and there is a, a impact on bone. Connie showed that when you stop, it seems to improve, so so and get back to the baseline. But but that means it it, it did go down. There's there certainly some you know renal uh, impact. So so you know I, I agree actually with both what Davy and Steve said. If they're they're bringing it up, but. But if it is really they're bringing it up because you know they 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 come in with a belt and suspenders on and they just want you know you want to kind of um, uh, you know caution them that it's not a risk-free pill it, there there's some consequence to it so but I, I would I would agree with what was said I, I think and I think it sounds like that's what you're doing and that's probably the yeah, right thing I, I I have not turned anyone away but I I do find in talking to people that there's a gap in you know, people's perceptions of risk very widely and the mm -hmm. risk tolerance really and a lot of the, I suspect there's a lot of folks who I'd love to get in and have them on PrEP and they, sure. you know, yeah, no, they're, they're, they're other not folks the people showing up in, who right. they've heard of PrEP, shouldn't I do anything in my power to protect myself including 100% condom use, screening my patients, right. you know, so it just yeah. the individuals come from very different perspectives. Yeah. Okay. You may, be, you may be getting the last word. Come on up. I just wanted to know if you could possibly summarize your approach to naive patients where you see some underlying, let's say, in an RTI resistance, and you wonder, and it's been a while, you, you kind of suspect it's been a while that they've had the infection. What is your suspicion that there could be, you know, certain archive mutations, especially the ones that archive pretty quickly, like an M184 or K65? Do you, do you kind of believe what you see? Or how often are you looking deeper or suspecting deeper resistance? 
Yeah, I think for me anyway, and, and Davies obviously and, and Connie are, are certainly could, could chime in. You know, I, th I think most transmitted drug resistance now that we see is not coming from someone who, um, you know, was exposed to someone on therapy. So this idea that um, it's actually probably, you know, their 103N is their kind of wild type and, and they don't have archived. Um, you know, the data are pretty strong that, um, you know, uh, 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 in, in kind of retrospective analyses and, and, and people who um, have, uh, you know, a single a class resistance if, if they're treated with, you know, uh, 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 drugs that are outside of that class, they, they, they do quite well. So I think that I don't actually, I, I used to think about it a lot. Now I, I don't worry about it as much. I, I will say that, that I do kind of hedge a little bit and, and choose a slightly higher barrier. So that's, um, uh, you know, that might be someone I might choose, you know, Dalutegravir over L-vitegravir or, or raltegravir, just, just to be a little bit safer. And I might choose a tenofovir-based therapy, whether it's TAF or TDF, FTC, as opposed to a bacavir, 3TC, just because, again, you know, bacavir, 3TC, if there is a 184 hanging out, you know, they, it, it kind of decreases uh, susceptibility to both of those agents, whereas it obviously sensitizes the virus somewhat to tenofovir-based therapy. So, so I guess I, I do still think about it in the back of my head, but um, I don't really worry about it too much. And I don't feel compelled to use a boost. I used to say, oh, I use a boosted PI in those patients. Uh, I don't feel compelled to do that. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Um, I guess it's time for lunch. So uh, see you in an hour or so, or see you over lunch. Great.